decide to move to China. Half the world's population lives in Asia, and the average age is in the low 20s. As the young populations of Asia started spending money, the development of Asia could be one of the important stories in the 21st century. What were the practices that made you a successful fundraiser? Have a strategy that hangs together, is consistent with what's going on in the marketplace, which makes sense. The thing is you had to have done your homework. But if you come along at the wrong time for whatever reason, it still may not work. Frank, How can young entrepreneurs find manufacturers in China? You need to in some way be on the ground. Welcome. My name is Daniel Gurley, and I'm the president of the Global Young Entrepreneur Society. The Global Young Entrepreneur Society is an international organization that supports exceptional young people in achieving entrepreneurial growth. My guest today is Jack Burkowski, founder and chairman of JFP Holdings. The son of working class Pennsylvania parents, Jack went to Yale on a football scholarship. After his studies at Yale, Jack graduated from the Harvard MBA program as a Baker Scholar. Next, Jack went to Wall Street, where he eventually became the head of investment banking at Payne Weber, now part of UBS, which is saved by raising $300 million after the Black Monday stock market crash. After leaving Payne and Weber, Jack raised $250 million for a leveraged buyout firm. He started with John Kluge, the media mogul and former richest man in the world. In 1992, Jack was one of the first to predict the rise of China and moved to Hong Kong, where he raised a $100 million fund that invested in publicly traded companies on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Jack proceeded to start a Simco Technologies, which became one of the largest auto parts manufacturers in China. Jack is the protagonist of the Economist Book of the Year, Mr. China, and is the author of Managing the Dragon, Building a Billion Dollar Business in China. I'm pleased to welcome Jack Burkowski. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you very much for that great introduction. I appreciate it. Well, it's great to be talking to you. Jack, you had a highly successful investment banking career in New York. Why did you decide to move to China? Well, one of the advantages of being on Wall Street is you, you sit there and you, you can see various trends that uh, start and then develop into very major businesses. So, for example, when I was on Wall Street in the late 70s, 1980s, I saw the birth of the uh, private equity business. It started off with KKR and leveraged buyouts and so forth, but soon evolved in private equity. Um, I also saw the beginning of the high yield securities market uh, in, in the 1980s that was pioneered by a company called Drexel Burnham, but which ultimately developed into another way for medium sized companies to finance and became a very big business. So when you're sitting there looking at these trends, you, you think to yourself, well, I knew everything that the founders knew when they started those businesses. Why didn't I do that? And so I kind of got it in my head that while I had had a very successful career on Wall Street to date, that I wanted to do something completely different for a second career. And I wanted to do something where I could identify a trend and get out ahead of it. And it could have been any part of the world. It could have been any industry. It didn't really matter. The only, uh, the only qualification was it had to be a long-term trend because I, I, I felt that whatever I was going to do next, I was going to do the, for the rest of my working career. So that, that's how I stumbled on Asia. I stumbled on a very fundamental demographic, which is half the world's population lives in Asia, 
and the average age is in the low 20s. I have three grown children, so I know that young people spend money. And so I felt that as the young populations of Asia started spending money, the development of Asia could be the, um, you know, one of the important stories in the 21st century. So that got me to Asia and I started traveling to Hong Kong. But when I was in Hong Kong, I quickly discovered that within Asia, China was the real driver. So I, I first targeted Asia, but then after doing my research, I narrowed that to China. So that's how I ended up in China in August of 1992, when I made my first trip. Over the course of your career, you have raised over $1 billion. What were the practices that made you a successful fundraiser? Now, there, 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 there are a couple of things. Some are within your control and some are not. The first thing that's within your control is you need to have a good strategy. You can't really convince investors to invest with you unless you have a strategy that hangs together that's, that, that, that is you know, kind of is consistent with what's going on in the marketplace, which makes sense. Okay. The, uh, the second thing is you had to have done your homework. You can't just identify a, an opportunity without having done much work and go to somebody and or to an investor and, and ask them to support you if you really haven't rolled up your sleeves and done you know, the homework. Okay. So in my case, let's just take, uh, you know, I raised uh, in the early 1990s, a total of about $500 million for investment in China, starting with a Simcoe Technologies, the automotive components company that I founded in, uh, in August of 94. Now at the time, there were a lot of firms that were raising capital, but they weren't industry focused. They basically said, okay, we're going to raise $100 million. We're going to invest in China. We're not sure what we're going to invest in. We're going to take minority uh, interest, but you know, China's growing, so we'll make money. That was kind of what the average fund was doing at the time. I felt that it was more important to have a, an industry strategy. So I focused on automotive components because at the time, that was the only industry in China where a foreign company, foreign individual could have majority ownership. And, and I felt there was an I, I felt the, the auto industry was going to grow from 500,000 units a year, which is where it was when I started, to something much, much larger. So that was my idea for the auto components business. Before I, I went and even talked to any investors, I visited in the, in the, in the uh, Jan, starting in January of 1993, I visited over 100 factories in 40 cities all over China. So you name the city or province, you know, we were there. Okay. So by the time I finished that, I knew the auto industry, the prospects, you know, what the likelihood for success was and so forth. And so with that strategy as, as, of majority ownership in automotive components companies and with the, the work that I had done, basically I could then go to investors and I could be, you know, intelligent and I could be persuasive. So that's what you need to do. You need to have a good strategy, then you need to do the work. Now, the things that are outside of your control are the timing. You could have the, <clears throat> the best strategy, have done a lot of work, but if you come along at the wrong time for whatever reason, it still may not work. Frankly, <clears throat> if I had tried to do this six months later than I did, I probably wouldn't have been successful because at the time, China inflation went to 21%. And Zhu Ranji put on the credit break. So China became a very different place 
six months after that. So that's why timing is completely outside of your control, but it can have an important factor as to whether you're successful or not. In your book, EuroDebt, you have two rules for China. Everything is possible, but nothing is easy. Could you give an example of something you accomplished in China that was thought of as impossible? So when I first went to China and I got this great idea for auto components, of course, even though I was early, there were people that were there before me, okay? And there were people in the auto industry before me. Uh, Chrysler, what was then American Motors, but became Chrysler, had done the joint venture with uh, Beijing Jeep, and that was really the first joint venture in China. So people associated with that organization were there. And, you know, they were experts, quote, experts on the Chinese auto industry. And so when I went to China and I had the idea for auto components, I, of course, would talk to to them. And see, I was in a hurry. I I wanted to get things done quickly. I didn't want to take, you know, years for this to develop. So I wanted to put together a fairly major company quickly. And I'll never forget meeting with one of these individuals. And I said, I want to do, you know, over the next two years, I want to do six or seven joint ventures. They looked at me and said, oh, it's impossible. It takes six months. It takes a year to get approval from the government to get, uh, you know, to get approval to establish a joint venture. And they, you know, and they kind of told me how difficult it was and how long it would take. And so that was the prevailing wisdom. If you, if you read the books at the time, they said, if you want to do something in China, it's going to take you a year or two just to set up a joint venture. But I went ahead. I, I, I felt that uh, if I could bring capital, if I could bring management, if I could bring technology to good U.S. companies, that I would find many companies that were willing to work with me. And because this was in the interest of the local government, they would fast track the approvals. And sure enough, that's what I did. In 1994 and five, we completed about eight joint ventures and I invested about $300 million into the auto components business. And we established the core of what became a very large auto components company. How important would you say speaking Chinese for doing business in China? If I could wake up tomorrow and be fluent in Mandarin, uh, I'd be the happiest person on earth. But it wasn't going to happen. You know, I was born in I was born in Pittsburgh. You know, most people don't think that the English I speak qualifies as a language. Languages kind of aren't my thing. Besides that, I went to China when I was roughly 40 years old. So for me to spend two or three years full time trying to learn Chinese and to speak it badly didn't really make any sense. So that really forced me to surround myself with people in the country, managers in the country that I could trust and rely on, and that could help me with, that could basically act as my mouthpieces, if you will, and, and but more importantly, could kind of clue me in as to what's happening in the country. What I tell people or young, you know, young entrepreneurs that are looking to, to, to start a business, whether in China or anywhere else, before you develop your strategy, the first thing you need to do is to get out a blank sheet of paper, and on one side you put your strengths, and on the other side you put your weaknesses. And then you develop your strategy to take advantage of your strengths and to compensate for your weaknesses. So in my case, my strength was I'd spent 20 years on Wall Street. In 1993, I was probably the only person, 1.3 billion people, who'd ever been on Wall Street, let alone spend 20 years there. 
So my strength was the ability to add capital and to bring resources. My weakness is I didn't, you know, I couldn't speak the language. So the way I compensated for that was by surrounding myself with high quality, good people that I, over the years, I learned to, to trust. And so, you know, so that's what you need to do before. So you, you ask, is it important? Yeah, it, it's nice to speak it. In my case, it's obvious it's not absolutely important, but you have to have some other angle. You know, you, you have to, you know, if you're going there as a young person, then I would advise you to learn the language. If you're going there with them, you've already had a career, then you obviously have uh, other advantages you can bring you know, to the table. How can young entrepreneurs find manufacturers in China who will produce their products both at a high quality and at a good price? You need to be, you need to in some way be on the ground to, to evaluate, visit the, the, the factory, okay? You can't just do it by internet or by remote control. Now, you can get an on the ground presence two ways. One is you can go there yourself and you can go with a, uh, somebody that can interpret for you and you can go and you can travel around the country and you can find factories and you can evaluate them. Uh, but then, uh, and you can pick ones that you think meet, you know, your, you know, your uh, quality requirements, but then you, you're going to have to, or you're going to have to have a presence there to, to keep monitoring the quality, because even though you may say, yep, factory X makes a good product, you know, as time goes on that the product quality may slip. Okay. The other way to do it is there, there are a lot of firms. I mean, our firm, for one, I mean, we help companies find factories. So there are companies you can work with. But one way or another, you need to basically find, you, you need to have a, a presence on the ground to not only evaluate their production systems, their quality methods, their quality systems, but then also to monitor that quality. Just like, um, you know, I said, everything's possible, nothing's easy. Is it possible to find good factories in China that uh, can make a good quality product? Absolutely. Is it easy? Absolutely not. Which industries will have the biggest growth in the coming decades? You know, China is by far the biggest consumption story in the world today. Anything that can help China in the healthcare area are going to be welcome. So the development of the capital markets in China is another big opportunity. So those What is your advice for young entrepreneurs wanting to sell their products to the Chinese market? If you really want to sell your product to China, you have to make it there. What advice do you have for getting Chinese investment? It's almost kind of word of mouth and, and personal relationships. So I, I'd say that, quote, Chinese money, uh, it's pretty elusive. In your book, Managing the Dragon, you said that it's very important to gain a trust of your Chinese partners. What should young entrepreneurs do to gain the trust and respect of their Chinese partners? The first thing you need to recognize, it takes time. You know, the, uh, the Chinese are hard markers. I say, uh, you know, everybody in China is from Missouri. Are you familiar with, with the characteristic of people from Missouri are? No, not really. People call Missouri the show me state. Because people in Missouri say, don't tell me, show me, okay? <laughs> so, so the Chinese are like all from Missouri, okay? And so what you need to do to get their trust is you need to tell them what you're going to do 
and then go out and do it. And if you do it over and over again, it takes a while, okay? It doesn't happen overnight. And they're gonna, they're gonna look at how you behave and how you react when you, adversity hits. Um, and they're gonna evaluate you based on that. But if you do that over time, that's the only way to really build trust. And the good news is it takes time and it's a lot of hard work. But once you gain that kind of trust with one group of Chinese, it tends to rub off on others. So if, uh, you know, if I develop trust with Peter Wong, for example, and Peter Wong now trusts me because I've done what I said I was going to do over and over again over a long period of time, you know, all of Peter's friends and his contacts will automatically trust me because they have trust in Peter. So basically, even though it takes a long time and is hard to do, once you get it, life in China becomes a lot easier. When you move to China, you identify the auto parts industry as a growth industry, which turned out to be true. For an investor looking at China today, which industries will have the biggest growth in the coming decades? There are a couple that I think are particularly interesting. First of all is the whole consumer market. You know, China is by far the biggest consumption story in the world today. Per capita incomes in China are now over $10,000 which means that more and more Chinese are getting into what you might call middle class. So they, they're, they're becoming a consuming class. Also, you've got a tremendous migration of Chinese into the cities. Over the, you know, China, when I first went to China, I think about 80% of the country lived in the countryside, 20% in the cities. Today, that number is 50%. But if you talk to economists, they'll tell you a country isn't really developed, fully developed, until the agricultural or the rural population is 30% or less. So there's at least 20% of a billion four people, 280 million, who will be moving into the cities over the next number of years. So as these increasingly wealthy Chinese move into the cities, that creates a tremendous demand for consumer goods. So consumer goods are clearly one. Anything to do with medical. You know, China has an aging population, health, all the different, you know, because of the air quality and so forth, uh, all, all types of diseases and so forth are really big problems in China. So anything, whether it's technology, whether it's uh, services that can help China in the healthcare area, are gonna be welcome. And those are good areas to invest in. Advanced manufacturing, that's an area where China wants to, you know, to basically develop its advanced manufacturing. So they, for example, bought a lot of robotics companies a couple of years ago. So if you have a company or if you're investing in a company that has an advanced manufacturing capability, that company is gonna have a good opportunity in China. The other one is the whole financial services industry. You know, China has about $30 trillion in its bank accounts. That's compared to the U.S. at 10. So why does China have three times more bank deposits than the U.S.? It's because their capital markets aren't developed. So in the United States, there are a lot of different ways or places you can put your money. So people don't want to keep it in a bank deposit that only pays a small interest rate. In, in China, you don't really have those kind of alternatives. So the development of the capital markets in China is another big opportunity. So those are a couple that I would, that I would name off the top of my head. 
China is the second largest economy in the world and are, is already the largest market for many products. What is your advice for young entrepreneurs wanting to sell their products to the Chinese market? I think, first of all, um, again, it, you know, it's not going to be easy. I mean, I, we talk to a lot of companies that have a, an interesting consumer product that they think, oh, because China's so big on the internet and so forth that we can we can get into China just by putting our our products on the internet and selling them that way. Uh, it doesn't really work. You know, perhaps you can you can sell through the internet, but it takes a, a pretty heavy investment in advertising and, and product promotion and all the things you need to do to develop the market. Uh, you know, beyond kind of internet and, and even with the internet, I'd say the if you really want to sell your product to China, you have to make it there. It is very difficult to export a product into China. Number one, the cost issue, you know, the, the costs are going are, are gonna, to, you know, you, you're going to be a high cost product. So in order to, to really be, be able to offer a product at the right quality, right technology, but also at the right price, you need to really make it there. So, uh, you know, when I started, uh, you know, talking to companies about do, what I wanted to do in components, and I, I, I went to, you know, the, the Volkswagens of the world, the first question they asked me is, where's your factory? And if you didn't have a factory in China, they really didn't want to talk to you. And, and that's still true today. I mean, if you got any customer in China and you say, I got a great product, they may love your product, but I guarantee you the first question they're going to ask is, where's your factory? And they're going to want to come visit your factory. So I, I think realistically, if you want to sell a lot in China, doesn't mean you can't sell some in China, okay, without it. But if you really want to make China a big part of your business, then you really have to have the presence there. You have to manufacture there. I've heard a few Chinese proverbs, and I found each of them to be very wise. Having lived in China for a very long time, what is your favorite Chinese proverb and why? I don't know if it qualifies as a proverb or not, but the one saying, if you will, that that I that I think tells a lot is is um, the mountains are the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. And the reason why, I, and in fact, that's a title to one of the chapters in my book. And the reason for that is because it really explains the essence of China, which is that even though people look at it as a very much top-down economy, it actually is a very decentralized economy. So when, when foreigners go to China, they think that the way to get into the China market is to fly to Beijing and meet with the highest ranking minister they can and to get his or her blessing for what they want to do. And then they can go out and implement their strategy. And we, and we tried that. It didn't work. Because what you found is you really needed to develop your relationships at the local level. And so the, the local you know, party secretaries, the local mayors in each of these cities around the country have a tremendous amount of latitude. And, and they, I mean, they take, you know, they, you know, they basically uh, you know, can make their own rules in many ways. And that's the way you get through the approval process. You get the local you know, the local mayor, the local party secretary that has a vested interest in you uh, locating your factory in their city, that will help you to develop your business. So I think, you know, 
I think people today still don't understand how decentralized China's economy is and how uh, how important it is to develop those local relationships. So the the saying, the mountains are high and the emperor is far away, to me, kind of really describes, you know, what China really is today, that it's a very decentralized economy. Today, there are many Chinese companies and, and individuals who invest. What advice do you have for getting Chinese investment? It's, um, it, it's hard, okay? It, it's hard to do that. And I think, uh, you know, in the United States, the Goldman Sachs and the uh, Morgan Stanleys of the world, and, you know, they all have extensive networks where they cater and, and market to high net worth individuals. And so you can put together pools of capital. In, in China, you really don't have that to the same extent. So while there are these individuals out there, uh, there's really no organized way to access that, that market. And so um, what you need to do is, is really kind of, it's almost kind of word of mouth and, and personal relationships. So I, I'd say that that is difficult. I know there's a lot of talk about this, quote, Chinese money. Uh, it's pretty elusive. And then you don't have the institutions in China. You don't have the insurance companies, the pension funds, to the same extent you have a developed economy. So that's why I say that the financial area is a big opportunity because over time, all of that will develop, right? There's no reason why the financial sector in China shouldn't develop the way it has in Western countries. But that, yeah, that's why it's an opportunity. We have come to the end of today's discussion, which I found very useful and highly engaging. On behalf of the Global Young Entrepreneur Society, Jack Burkowski, thank you very much for speaking with me today. My pleasure, Dan. Good luck.